3: This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The
4: cold hard truth about the Olympic journey is not really been financially incentivized in the same way that many other professional sports are. The
0: business of basketball involves NBA, Global, our licensing arm, Think 450. All of those things will make up what that
1: looks like. Money
3: in sports is one of the reasons why I enjoy being on Monday Night Countdown and talk about some of the more interesting aspects of business of sports. When you're talking sports, discipline is the bridge from being good to ultimately being great at whatever it is that you're trying to be or accomplish as your profession bloomberg business of sports from bloomberg radio and this is the bloomberg business of sports show we explore the big money issues in the world of sports i'm michael barn
5: i'm scarlett foo
3: and i'm mike lynch today's guest he is the professor of economics and finance at seton hall university kurt
4: Rodhoff. nil the image and the likeness policy finally allows them to to make some money
3: that is straight ahead on the bloomberg business of sports but first let's talk about some of the topics here's a name i'm willing to bet a lot of people don't think about when you think about investing ex-nfl star marshawn lynch and now he is involved in a lot of things now. He's teaming up with Serena Williams. And for that matter, he has been in a lot of other things, Scarlett, that I bet a lot of people don't know about, including things uh, involved hockey and all the other stuff.
5: Yes, Marshawn Lynch uh, spent 13 seasons in Seattle with the Seahawks, and he is now taking part in the newest team in the city, which is the Seattle Kraken. And he's joined the ownership team as a minority investor he has been shadowing the owner of the Kraken uh, learning hockey CEO operations so I don't know if this means that he's gonna actually be operationally involved as well because it's one thing to be an investor it's another thing to be you know making decisions as well
6: well he's gonna be a minority owner of the Seattle Kraken here was a guy that just was off the radar screen for a while wouldn't talk to anybody now he's on every single subway commercial, (laughs) (laughs) and now he's popping up uh, on the Seattle Kraken and he's um you know he's a very beloved figure in in the city of of Seattle and he's just one of many many professional athletes retired mostly that are getting into ownership and we've had a long list in history you can go back to LeBron James with Liverpool you can go to Michael Jordan with the Charlotte Bobcats and there's some other names that are popping up too
5: Wayne Gretzky you know him as the hockey legend the great one he apparently was also really big into lacrosse I didn't know the national sport of Canada's box lacrosse <laughs> but didn't. when, when I read that? that
6: no I did not know that I mean you you'd have to go a long way to convince me that it's not ice hockey I know the lacrosse. unofficial mm. national sport is ice hockey clearly <laughs> at that yeah
5: yeah but apparently Currently, the national sport of Canada is box lacrosse, and that's something that Wayne Gretzky played since he was young, um, since he was about six, and he continued playing until obviously he transitioned full time to hockey. I I got to bring this
3: up because, and and, Lynchy, you brought this up uh, when you were on Twitter. Speaking of hockey in Canada, famous Guy Lafleur, uh, he passed fairly recently. Mm -hmm. And recently, there was a game against the Canadians and the Boston Bruins. And the fans, for a moment, wouldn't let the game start because they kept holding up either lighters or their with phone. their phones, whatever, to to honor Guy Lafleur.
6: It went on for twenty five minutes. It was uh, wow. Yep, yeah. it went on for twenty five minutes. It was a Sunday night game late in the season, and. The game was supposed to start at 7. They dropped the puck finally at 7.25. And every time the public address announcer would come on, he speaks in French first and then English, they would drown drone him out. with. A, they would raise the level of cheering, and then they, they'd go into ole, 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 ole. And that, that's how revered the Guy Lafleur was, lying in state for two days yep. in Montreal and yep. having a state funeral for a hockey player. I mean,
3: that's really something. I remember Guy Lafleur when I was a kid, and mm-hmm. I'm watching him... Uh, on the ice, and I'm like, you know, and that was one of the early names I knew outside of all the Detroit Red Wings that I knew was Guy Lafleur. I mean, he was he was just great. And it, I always laughed at uh, the the fans. They wouldn't call him Guy. They'd call him Guy. Guy. <laughs> Guy. It's like, you know, saying, no, it's Guy, man. It's like, you know, but God rest your soul, sir. You provided a lot for hockey, and we have nothing but accolades for you, sir. And let's talk about... What we're here for, the business of sports. And you couldn't find anyone better than this. This is the Professor of Economics and Finance at Seton Hall University, Professor Kurt Rothoff. Thank you, sir, for joining us here on the Bloomberg Business of
4: Sports. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
3: Well, I'm going to start with the first one here. And I know it's always the go-to in today's society, but boy, it is a lot of money involved. Name, image, and likeness. It has changed the entire landscape of what college sports is all about can you take us into what it has meant for college sports, and where do you see the
4: future going? Oh, man, this has been a, a major change in college sports. It has been a fascinating change in college sports, um, something I've been arguing for for a long period of time. There are very few industries where we have such low wage caps on on the people participating in the sport and generating the revenue. Uh, so NIL, the image and the likeness, policy finally allows them to to make some money. I think that this is an amazingly useful policy for society, probably not so much for donations to athletic departments, probably not so much for coaches' future salaries, but I think that the athletes who are participating in this are finally able to capture some of those gains for those things they've been working for all their lives. And I think that it provides an opportunity where they will be making some Some big money. You're already starting to see some large contracts rolling in. I expect them to get bigger and broader. That is, we're going to expect bigger contracts on the big players, but I also think there's going to be broad contracts going to some lesser-known players that can still advertise and be able to use their image Uh, for the local areas where they're participating.
5: It'll also lead to bigger tax bills as well. Um, Bloomberg has published a story about how the tax responsibilities is something that perhaps has not been looked at just yet. It's not just for the student athlete who is being paid with endorsements and other benefits, but as well as their parents who might still claim them as dependents. Can you talk us through a little bit about what we might have seen or what we're likely to see in this first year where these student-athletes have started reporting their income and they're in a whole new tax income category? They're in a whole new income bracket, excuse me.
4: Yeah, they they move from no income to some income, which is always a, a glorious day in anyone's life when you move up to having some income for the first time. I think their parents will be a little shocked. I think the parents probably were planning on having them as dependents throughout their college career. But at the same time, I think that no one looks at receiving an income and having to learn the tax system as necessarily a bad. It is complicated. I just finished filing my taxes uh, not that long ago, and it is a a complicated system. But at the same time, it is something they're going to have to learn eventually anyway. My hope is that the athletic departments and many of them have stated that they are working with the the athletes on NIL deals and trying to figure out not just what it means, but hopefully what it means from a tax perspective and financial aid perspective and all those other perspectives that all matter. So it is going to be uh, a complex and confusing task. These students are college athletes, uh, which means that they are student athletes. so this is part of their student role is to learn something new. And I hope since they're at places of higher learning, they're able to get through that process and find the resources on campus. Most campuses have departments or certain classes that work on personal finance. Um, Hopefully they're signing up for those classes earlier now so that they know how to handle these funds on the tax side, but also what to do with it once you start to have money. We all know life changes when you go from that that zero income to to a positive income. Taxes are uh, an issue that you have to deal with with that but at the same time learning how to handle money and have money especially at young ages is is very difficult for all of us. So I would hope they're all getting the the trading and background to go with it.
6: Hey Kurt, it's uh, Mike Lynch up in Boston here. So how do we govern this? There's no one governing body like the NCAA and every state has different rules. Uh, I mean I can only imagine the compliance office must be just going crazy in every single school around the country.
4: Yes. I think that they are. I think that not having a uniform rule makes it more difficult because you're dealing with what the, not only what the NCAA does, but what the NCAA might do, and dealing with student-athletes and how involved you can and can't be, and dealing with, I imagine there's a lot of donors calling up and asking the questions of how do they get involved, and it's not clear how, how active the athletic department is allowed to be on that. I think in most cases they are supposed to be passive and just provide information. Um, it's unclear whether they're doing that or taking a more active role, uh, which could lead to some interesting NCAA rulings in the future. Some of my research is on NCAA bans and things like that. So, like, will there be future bans that come from over-involvement in NIL deals or trying to get students NIL deals when that's supposed to be something they're seeking out on their own? Yeah, it's amazingly complex. Anytime we go through a change this drastic we expect major complexities but at the same time i still think the net effect of this is good for the athletes it's good for the athletic departments and i think it's good for athletics on the whole
3: nick saban from alabama said this the best we've talked about this earlier on the show that (laughs) the kids today coming out of uh, alabama or the kids in alabama with the nil deals uh, are making fists full of dollars and as a coach It's got to be hard, and you kind of touched on it earlier, how do you rein in a guy (laughs) if he is super dude and he's driving around in a new Mustang because he's pitching the Ford dealership in the area? How do you rein that guy in?
4: So I have a hard time with that argument. I'm I'm not sure we need to rein people in. Um, The NLFL seems to function well, and they're very highly paid. I have plenty of friends who got jobs right out of right out of high school who were well-paid uh, in, in some, some hands-on tech industries. They're well-paid. We don't need to rein them in. Um, I mean, they're still athletes. They're now paid athletes. Um, I don't think Nick Saban has all that much room to talk, given his compensation package on other people making money and driving new Fords on campus. I have students who have jobs while while they are students, and they've been driving nice new cars for years, and it's the athletes who haven't been able to afford that lifestyle. I don't know if rein in is the right word. I think that we need to find... I'm an economist, so I'll say that we need to find a new equilibrium of where that balance is, and that balance used to be that students had no rights and functionally no income unless they were doing something on on some sort of black market, taking out loans on potential future prospects or future drafts, which I have other issues with. And now it's out in the open. I think it, it opens the fair playing ground a little bit more. I think we're all Kind of living in a tunnel if we think nobody was rece- receiving no cash compensation at any point, um, which came out in basketball for a few different schools through the FBI a few years ago, right I mean the money is there, the money 's always been there. we might as well let it be above the table, and rating them in, I think is different um, these are These are athletes they're they 're good at what they 're doing. they need to understand how to balance that form of a life and One of my favorite quotes who i 've heard came from John Calipari is he runs personal finance with all of his expected one and dones and says, Look, the first million you make, it's gotta stay in the bank. You keep that in the bank, you keep that invested. If you blow all the rest of it, you still have something to live on. So I think this leads to a world where we need we need academia, we need places like Bloomberg to to give us useful podcasts on these uh, on these personal finance issues to say, hey, look, this is how you handle it now that you have money because you're going to come into a lot of money. And when you come into that money, you need to know what to do with it. See, I- Take
0: your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at
2: americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
3: This is why you remind me of my mom when she said, you're always starting stuff. This is what you did. This is what happened.
5: (laughs) Professor, you had talked about how name, image, and likeness certainly changes the landscape for student athletes, but there are also these huge implications for the whole economy and ecosystem of college sports overall all the alumni donations that come into sports programs, the stratospheric salaries of coaches. We mentioned Nick Saban. He's doing quite well for himself. Walk us through some of the unintended consequences on donations and coaches' salaries that you anticipate.
4: Um, That was a great way to say it, the unintended consequences, because we think that we're just creating revenues that are going to the student-athletes, but it does change the structure of... Of athletics within the college atmosphere right within within the college athletic administration department is going to change and and one of those big things I think is and I'm an economist here and as an economist I say okay there there are donors who donate a lot of money to these athletic departments and the donor Often donates because they support and want to see that athletic department grow, succeed, or continue to succeed. And so when they look at things like that, right, so if I have $50,000 that I'm getting ready to donate, um, but I do own a car dealership down the road, um, the question is is my money better spent by donating $50,000? To the, the athletic department, or is my money better spent if I do an NIL deal with one or a few players and spend mm. that $50,000 on those players, right? So I think the donors are, are sitting back. I, I don't think donations have started to drop drastically, but donation data is really difficult to find, um, and, and most schools are not willing willing to overly reveal too much information about their donation data. Um, I would love to have that data. I would love to see what happens over the next few years, but the economist in me just sits back and goes look there's there's clearly an incentive for some donors to hold back a few bucks and sign them I on see. nil deals and and it almost turns into the point depending on how big of a donation you're giving that you can become a recruiting mechanism, right? So um, it's no longer just Alabama Athletics recruiting or Clemson Athletics recruiting. It ends up being the donor base going, hey, if you come here, I've got a $2 million contract and waving that in the air. And so it hands quite a bit of power over those potential donors through these NIL deals. And I think that changes the way we think about college recruitment and how it works in college recruitment. Then the second side of that you talked about, uh, coaches' salaries. The college athletic system is kind of weird on this, right? Mm. Coaches leave the NFL. They go back to college athletics and functionally get a raise, Jim Harbaugh right Mm -hmm. and there is no system in the world where you leave the major leagues to go to the minor leagues right we think of college and i am a huge college athletics fan but college athletics for a a lot of these players is getting them ready for the pros right the pros is where the big money is the pros is where the big talent is um, this is the, the stepping stone, which is what is commonly thought of as a minor league. And since we don't have a minor league system in football, the minor league system in football is college football. And for coaches to leave the NFL and go into the minor league system and make those kind of monies means that there was something structurally wrong with the minor league system to begin with.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: So, Kurt, um, you're at Seton Hall. Basketball is the biggest revenue sport at Seton Hall. You were a swimmer in college. Uh, To your knowledge, have any Seton Hall athletes at the less high profile, less revenue-producing sports like swimming, like lacrosse, like track and field been able to cash in on name, image, and likeness?
4: My understanding, and I have not ask that question partially intentionally because I don't want it to seem like I'm overbearing on my thoughts of NIL with our athletic department. And for full disclosure, I'm also a volunteer assistant swim coach here at Seton Hall. So I I do assist the swim team, um, but I I try not to, to meld too much of my research and economic interests into the coaching side. I go and I coach. I come and I teach and I think about this stuff. My understanding is that there are some small deals happening across the sports. Um, I have not seen any massive deals in some of these what we would call Olympic sports. But my understanding is there are small deals going on in, in throughout, sprinkled throughout them. Some student athletes have done a very good job of advertising themselves and going out and finding these deals for some of the bigger name sports. They're they're coming to seek those athletes.
5: Professor, let me just follow up on your point earlier about how there's something broken structurally within the minor league of college athletics that coaches get paid so much more once they coach in college football, for instance, rather than in the major leagues in in the NFL. Does name, image, and likeness make this an even more broken system, or does it help fix it?
4: So I think it's going to appear as if it's more broken on the surface and at the beginning. And the reason for that is we still have large coaches salaries that we have to pay, yet some of the money is now being pushed towards the student-athletes um, that could have been pushed towards those coaches salaries in the past, um, typically when we think about major leagues right we we look at these leagues who who have collective bargaining agreements, right a certain percentage of revenues go to the the athletes, a certain percentage of revenues go to the owners and when you have these splits in revenues that 's how you determine how much you can pay these coaches and for For a historical perspective, the split has been 0% student-athlete, and all the revenues can go to buildings and coaches. And so the the arms race of building bigger and better buildings – was where the money was going, and the arms race of hiring bigger-name coaches that can get you drafted in the NFL was where the money was going. So we've, we've, added, we've taken that 0% away. Now there's money going towards the student-athletes through NIL, and because you can go to the student-athletes through the NIL deal, that, that changes the financial structure, yet we're locked into some big long-term contracts for quite a few of these coaches. In an equilibrium sense, I would expect college coaching salaries to fall on average. I would expect those revenues to be paid towards student-athletes. Right now it has to be indirectly through the donations that we talked about earlier. But in an equilibrium sense, some sort of revenue-sharing agreement would make a lot of sense. Um, which would bring down coaches' salaries. They would stop have to build, having to build and put so much money into the into the buildings, into the stadiums, into the locker rooms. Um, I've been in quite a few of these locker rooms. They are fantastic. But that was a recruiting tool. And now instead of indirectly handing them benefits, oh, we have this PlayStation set up in the locker room so you guys can go <laughs> play video games in between practices and classes, and now we can actually just hand you cash. And a lot of these student-athletes are kind of going, ooh, Do I want to play PlayStation for free or do I want to make a few thousand dollars? And that new equilibrium is going to take some time, right? As an economist, we like to theoretically think about a world where we just pull the bandaid off and everything goes beautifully. But it'll be mildly chaotic for a few years until a new equilibrium is met. But when that new equilibrium is met, I think that we would expect less revenues going towards those indirect payments to students. And more revenues going towards those direct payments.
6: I go down to like the place like Clemson, and they have a swimming pool, they have a barber shop, they have miniature golf, they have a water slide, and then they go up and they eliminate the men's and women's track and field. I mean, it just it just drives me out of my mind down there. And I know every school has its own priorities, and they do whatever they want to do with the money they have right here. But are we ever going to have a balance in college athletics ever?
4: Will we ever have a balance? Uh, We will have a new balance. It will have some balance. I don't know uh, what balance you're trying to optimize over. Um, We will certainly have a balance of more student-athletes making money. Um, It was asked earlier whether the non-big-time sports are going to make money. I think the Olympic sports will have their place. Uh, The Olympic sports will make some money. Um, They'll never make nearly as much money as the big-time sports, our football and basketball programs. but they they will have their space. They will have they will have an area as a, a they will have a place where they can now start to make those type of revenues and monies for themselves. Um, will there be balance? I mean, again, I will admit my bias. Um, I actually coached swimming at Clemson uh, before I came up here to Seton Hall, and shortly after I came up here to Seton Hall, they cut the swim team. So they do have a swim pool, but they cut their swim team after after I left. The Olympic sports have always had those issues. They're the first and easiest ones to put on the cutting block. As soon as you get rid of, or as soon as there's a budget downturn, right? You get rid of some sports. It's the easiest to cut the ones that aren't generating any revenues. I think often they they misdo their accounting on those type of things. Uh, for instance, they cut the swim team. But they still have a swim pool down at Clemson. And usually when the swim team is using the swim pool, they budget the cost of running the swim pool through the athletic department. But the university still runs a swim pool, right? So they didn't cut their costs nearly as much as they thought they were going to. I think that this is where issues of Title IX come up, issues of equality come up. I know that's one of the biggest things I've heard athletic directors talk about. How does NIL deals or how do NIL deals comply with Title IX, right? Are we we obligated to make sure the student-athletes are making revenues through their NIL deals that are equal across genders? And since they are outside contracts working with those student-athletes, The athletic departments have very little say in what those contracts are, right? They they should have no say in what those contracts are. They're just supposed to be helping the student athletes learn how the process works, and then they go seek their own deals. But if you start to get large contracts within one gender and not in the other, how does that how does that issue get resolved through Title IX? And what has traditionally been thought of as a gender equality issue within athletic departments? And again, we're going to see more and more donors using their money for things like that, which Mm. means there's less ancillary funds available for swimming and track. And so those are going to be interesting issues moving forward. A lot of the conferences have a minimum number of teams that you have to have in order to be in that conference. I think as long as the conferences don't change those rules, we'll still see quite a few sports at all these big-time schools. But it would get really interesting if the conference started to say, you can have less sorts and still be a Big East team or still be an ACC team.
3: I want to talk about a paper that you co-wrote, and it was referenced by Forbes uh, in the story last month. Those Cinderella teams, especially in the NCAA basketball tournament, and, of course, my favorite, St. Peter's. (laughs) <laughs> nobody knew who in the world St. Peter's was except the people in New Jersey. And all of a sudden, they just routed a lot of teams, big-name teams. And here comes the small college that could. Professor, what does it mean for a small college when you have some sort of Cinderella run like that?
4: Oh, the Cinderella run is uh, an amazing time to advertise for your school, right? Like you said, nobody knew who St. Peter's was. They make this run in the basketball tournament. The buzz is around, who is St. Peter's? What school is that? Who are they beating? They beat Kentucky? Really, Kentucky? This is amazing. (laughs) So the Cinderella run really gets the school's name on the map. And and because of that, it it really does have a big impact uh, on that school, but it's not nearly as big of an impact as some people involved in the programs want to say, right? If I was a basketball coach, justifying my amazingly large salary. One of the things I would do is talk about how massive my Cinderella run was. There was one study that came out that it was worth $100 million worth of advertising. And they did that through an advertising valuation plan, which is advertising that can't be bought so it's hard to say what 100 million dollars buys you in advertising that can't be bought because you can't call up SportsCenter center and say just talk about my school a bunch during SportsCenter." <laughs> um right um but even uh coach k came out and said oh it's worth at least 10 million dollars our estimates don 't show anywhere near that um, somewhere between one and three three and a half million dollars if, if they can in- increase their recruitment increase and retain those students for four years, a one year bump is, is closer to eight hundred to a million dollars, and if they retain those students for four years, it looks like they make, might make three to three and a half million dollars so they 'll make some revenues off of additional students. Uh, student quality could get a little bit better, um, but there's been a lot of Cinderella runs throughout the years, I had a debate with one of our former athletic directors where he said, oh no, this is what put Gonzaga on the map. And my response to that is, well, okay, fine, but what about like Providence-Cinderella run in 87, or Cleveland State's in 86, or Tulsa in 94, or UT Chattanooga in 97, or Northern Iowa in 2010, right? Um, It's easy to cherry-pick the data and say Gonzaga made a run and now everybody knows who they are versus all the runs we've seen over the years Mm -hmm. and, and schools that have, we haven't forgotten about the schools but they certainly don't have the cash
0: take your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card it offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business you can also earn up to 395 dollars in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants that's the powerful backing of american express
2: That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. ...that Gonzaga carries with it
4: right now.
5: Yeah, well, we all love a good... Cinderella run. We, we spent a lot of time talking about St. Peter's and, and how it's now on the map. I'm curious to, to just combine um, this part of the conversation with name, image, and likeness. What do, what do you think in terms of Duke basketball players deciding that they're going to go pro, they're no longer going to play at Duke? Are more college athletes going to be incentivized to stay at school uh, because they now get paid? Or will they continue to turn pro, or is that decision-making process separate from name, image, and likeness?
4: Well, I think the the margins of income between the two are slightly different. If you can go high in the draft, I don't think the NIL deals are going to quite compensate you for what you can make in the major leagues. But I do think that there are a lot of student athletes who are going to stay longer because they can make some money off of it. We were talking about Olympic sports earlier. Uh, the gymnastics competition just finished up in, in collegiate gymnastics, um, which is one of the sports I really enjoy watching. My wife is an ex-gymnast. Her sister is a, 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 was a college gymnast. And it was, it's, it's fun to watch. And what's even more exciting is this is the first time we've seen a large cohort of Olympic gymnasts go to college after the Olympics. Yeah, Sunili. Yep, Suni Lee, um, Jade Carey was in there. Um, there's quite a few. I think there were five or six at the the nationals, and it was it was amazing to watch, right? And it was amazing to watch because you knew the names, you got to see the Olympians, you got to learn new names by doing it. But that never happened. And one of the arguments is it happened because of NIL, right? It happened because they used to go on tours, and that was their only way to make money after the Olympics. But now they have uh, the ability to make money. Post-Olympics by still going into college athletics, and I think it draws that talent in, and it keeps the marginal player there for a little bit longer because they might stay and try to increase their draft prospect, but be able to make a little money along the way and not need to jump straight into the draft just to make
6: some money. Kurt, uh, I want to go back to this uh, thing you alluded to earlier in this interview about financial literacy of, of college students, and especially those that, that turn pros and. Uh, To make a long story short, I've been involved with this program called Credit for Life here in Massachusetts, and we have one coming up. About 1,200 high school juniors they select a profession. They could be a nurse. They could be a, a lawyer. They could be a, a college professor. They're given a salary. Then they go around to each booth. They go to housing. They go to transportation. They go to fun, 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 oh, which, I love they, this. which they love. Um, and then when they come around the end, they all have they have an app with their iPad or their phone, and they look how much they have left <laughs> over at the end of the month or how much they're in the hole at the end of the month. If we don't run programs like this, are we failing those that are going to come into money very, very quickly, like the the professional athlete, the college athlete who's going to turn pro and all of a sudden his his or her financial world is going to change immediately?
4: So I'm going to give you a wishy-washy answer, which I don't think is what you want, but I I think it's the truth, which is, I love the program that you're doing. I also work for a nonprofit, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, where I actually go into high schools and do a financial uh, lecture. I take a different approach where I go, minimize all your expenses, save as much as possible, and then I do the math to show them how much that, that savings grows over time, which turns into a, a personal lifetime endowment, uh, if, so to speak, which is kind of what Calapari was saying when he said, save your first million and live off the interest of that <clears throat> for the rest of your life. Uh, because you always have that money to lean back on. I, I think that those programs are really important. The problem is is that, that I'm a professor, I teach classes, I've gone into these high schools. Those programs are are great for the enthusiastic that care at that point in time. But there are so many people that don't care at that point in time because they see no light at the end of the tunnel, they see no money coming in, they see it as a pointless task that their teacher made them do because they were told you have to come do this project whereas when they come into the money and they actually start seeing coming in it coming in it becomes real and so I, I fully support that program that you talked about that you're doing. That is great. That is awesome. I hope one of those booths was retirement and see if they can just dump all their money into that from the beginning because the mathematical um, exponential function of that growing over time is amazing.
5: That should be the mandatory um, first stop.
4: Yes, exactly. Go dump as much as you can into this booth and then see what you have left. But it needs to continue, right, because those kids might have a lot of fun that day. They, I hope they get a lot out of it. Some of them may just be going through the exercise uh, because it got them out of class or whatever other reason they chose to do it. But we need to do it again once they start to have money. This needs to be a continual conversation. I think American society is woefully underprepared to have money talks because it is taboo. Mm -hmm. It needs to be a more open discussion. It needs Mm -hmm. to be a more willing discussion. And you need to find money mentors just like you find a mentor in basketball or a mentor in your professor or teachers and a mentor for anyone who wants to go into podcasting. You go find somebody who does that that can be your mentor to join that type of an industry. You need to have money mentors. You need to have a continual process. I love. I would love to hear more about what you're doing up there in Massachusetts, um, but those programs are great, and we need more of it.
6: Well, the, the look on their faces when they come around after they've hit some of the other booths like health and wellness, uh, food, nutrition, uh, investments, savings, et cetera, is uh, is like huh what you know <laughs> I mean yeah. it's, uh, and, and of course they're young they're high school juniors but I mean yeah. it, it's never too early but I, I'm just constantly am- amazed and then they really ask intelligent questions after a while I mean some of the kids are there to goof off and they sit in the bleachers and they just do what they have to do but I would say the majority of the kids are really it, it's a wake-up
3: call for them
5: I can think Good. of some adults who could benefit from this <laughs> I'm
3: listening right now <laughs>
4: exactly
3: I, you know, I, and I will wrap this up, but I got to tell that my son, my youngest son, he's a junior and he, it, this all goes back to NIL about taxes and all the other stuff. And he says to me, he says, dad. I got to pay taxes. You know how much I got to pay in taxes? <laughs> $80. And I'm like, "Shut up." <laughs> it's like, "You wait until you you get as old as your old man here with the gray hair. You'll <laughs> you need this class. So, Lynchy, I might send them to you to have a talk with. You know, guy.
6: and that's that that taxes is a good thing cuz I want to bring this up cuz the uh, you know, we're in the the NFL draft season here and last year The number one draft pick was Trevor Lawrence out of Clemson, drafted by the Jacksonville Jaguars. State of Florida has no state income tax. Mm -hmm. The number two pick was Zach Wilson, Mm -hmm. who got selected by the Jets, who has to live and work in New Jersey. (laughs) Now, their salaries are slotted by the NFL. They're basically making the same. Their four-year package is worth roughly $34 million. What are the financial implications of playing in New Jersey versus playing in Florida, Professor? Professor?
4: the tax structure is certainly different there are there's more to it than income tax right um new jersey uh where i am is a high income tax state we also have high property taxes um, sale ta- sales tax is actually not horrible. Certain items, it's it's bearable or or non-existent in non-income tax states. Sales tax tends to be relatively high. Some states that have lower state income tax have local city taxes that raise it. I think it's a lot more a lot more complex than most people think. They think going to one state. I have a friend who just moved to New Jersey from Texas, and she was talking about the income tax here, uh, but. She realized really quick that our sales tax was much lower, right? I mean, so uh, it's much more complex than that, but absolutely, those things matter. It's a, a cost of living. It's a lifestyle. Um, now that I have children, you mentioned uh, your child, one of your children is a, a junior. I have three kids in the school system. Um, I live in a higher tax area, uh, but I choose that for a good school system. Um, so long-term, I, I imagine most people being drafted first first round of the NFL don't have too many children, um, but there's, there's a lot going on within that system, but there's certainly inequalities in the uh, state tax system. Um, but there are lots of different metrics that you have to think about, including that sales tax and property tax and everything else. Um, so the, the state income tax matters. Uh, it's certainly not the only part that matters. Um, and there's certainly a lot of a lot of different parts of that system that make it amazingly complex, which brings us back to one of the original questions of, of what do we do now that the, these student-athletes are being taxed? Um, and, and, and another question, <clears throat> most pro-athletes, not only have to pay their taxes where they live, but they have to pay it where they play. Um, so they have to pay income tax for all the different cities that they go and play games at, which also tends to equate it across the NFL and Major League Baseball, because they're going to so many different cities that they have to pay the local tax in that city when they participate in that city. Um, Will NIL force them to pay their deals when they go play other schools, when Clemson travels to Alabama or plays out of state or plays in the Sugar Bowl or anywhere else? That is another complex question.
3: Kurt Rudhoff, professor of economics and finance at Seton Hall University. Thank you so much, sir, for taking the time out and talking with us. It was a lot of fun. and And, of course, you dropped a lot of knowledge on us. Thank you, sir.
4: <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. That
5: was Thank really you. fun. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you, professor. Thank you.
3: Professor always, like I said, he lays a lot of knowledge on us. And the phrase that I used was reining in if you were a coach. And he said, No, it's not about reining in. And and he's got a point because it's like, look, it's like you got a lot of people making a lot of money out there. So why do I need to rein you in when it's to your benefit to perform very well on the field in the first place?
5: That's true, but these are still kids when it comes down to it. I mean when you're a college when you're in college, or a student athlete, oftentimes you're in your early 20s. Um, some people take a gap year before they go to school and everything, but um, they've got a lot to learn. And I, I understood your, your question about reining them in because I think about how there are some college coaches that go to uh, the, the big leagues, and I'm thinking of um, – for instance, yep. a New York Rangers coach, uh, who went from BU coaching BU to coaching the Rangers, and the there, there's a mind shift there in terms of like how you can motivate your players. Uh, you can't treat them the way you did in college, which was to run them through the drills. to, to it, it was an extension of youth hockey, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've got to treat them like professionals, like grownups, and that's a hard transition for a coach to make. Um, so now you're you're talking about the reverse, right? You're you're yeah. you have a bunch of student athletes that see themselves as professionals. Yeah, um, yeah. that's it's going to make for uh, an interesting couple of years of transition. <laughs> it's going to take a while to reach that equilibrium, as a professor like to say.
6: Uh, I, I think financial literacy is is really coming down the track a hundred miles an hour, especially with this name, image, and likeness. So let's just say you have a very small nil deal with. Um, some social media company and they give you a thousand bucks a month they don't take any taxes out so you get 12,000 all of a sudden come next April whoa you owe four thousand dollars
5: yeah and you haven't accounted for that
6: no no you've spent it it's gone I mean, you know, it's you're either you're either uh, sitting in it or you you were swimming in it <laughs> at some point.
3: You know how much I gotta work to spend four hundred thousand dollars in my household? We're we're the White Castle household, man. We were sliders for days, man. That's that's the big meal for us. Uh, speaking of uh, financial uh, aptitude. Oh, no. But it's oh, no. time for... My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I'll wear the number because of Mike.
5: My... We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I
3: was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Yes, it's time for the number of the week.
5: He's been looking for a number
3: all week long. Yeah, now, this this is an interesting one. Um, And, of course, this is uh, NFL draft weekend uh cleveland they held uh, the draft uh and last year and it generated for the economic impact for the region roughly 42 million dollars according to the cleveland sports commission what i want to know is in 2019 when the nfl draft was held in nashville how much did that generate <laughs>
5: 42 million in Cleveland was when?
3: Uh, that was last year. Last year, yeah. in
5: 2021, during pandemic time.
3: What I want to know is, in 2019, when it was in Nashville, how much did it generate?
5: I'm going to say 50 million.
3: Didn't she? He's going to give say... an awfully specific
5: number. That'll be on the nose. It's a big
6: attraction. Um a lot of people like to go there. I'm going to go really north of that. I'm going to go
3: like uh, oh, 180 million. Whoa! Wow, Lynchy, you're under. They generated 200 more than 200 million dollars in oh. 2019 just for the economy there, because and and because you, you got all the stuff, you got all you know, yeah, uh, Music City, Music City, and all the other stuff. Grand Old Opry, 200 million dollars. That's why I can't wait when Detroit gets it in twenty twenty four. It's like You've already man, checked it out, right? I've already checked it out, man. It's like <laughs> and I wanna go as a vacation. But see here's the problem. If I say I'm going to go see the draft uh, going to say, oh, you, why don't Could you, you please grab an interview? Yeah,
5: with can you why work don't you report it? from there and like let's set you up and
3: uh, I'll, see. I'll, but I know me; I, I would be in there, and it's like. And first for the Lions. Oh no! What are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry. Are you on? I'm <laughs> be, sorry. I mean,
5: there'd be bias all over the place.
3: Oh, there would be a lot of rooting in the in the booth, <laughs> From me, but but that is amazing. I mean, it's two hundred million dollars, and it that generates a lot. So, and folks. Um, that's why they're rotating these things around, you know, and which I think is a good idea. I so mean,
5: why is Cleveland so low?
3: That well I think you hit you said it before because it was during the pandemic. And, I think so. and they're just coming off the heels of that and people were like, Do I wanna go out in this thing? And it's like well, you know, what's happening here? So and I think that's part of it, which I always felt bad for Cleveland. But. Yeah, and
6: they had, they had a lot of social distancing rules there. and, and we, it, This usually is like Times Square and New Year's Eve of the NFL draft. People just want to get in there, they're shoulder to shoulder. And last year there were a lot of uh, spatial restrictions. So mm-hmm. I think that's why that number was so low, because I think some of the other ones, uh, Michael Barr, I'm sure you researched them, were all well above that $42 million.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why I didn't want to say if it was higher or lower. Yeah, he kept a very good poker face. (laughs) I
5: remember when uh, my husband's friends came to town for the NFL draft many, many, many moons ago. I didn't even know that that was a big deal, that... Yeah, People Radio come City. to
6: town. Yeah, yeah
3: Radio and City was there all the
6: time.
5: Yeah. It's a whole weekend extravaganza. Oh
6: yeah, oh, or week
5: long yeah. extravaganza, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah,
6: good weekend for you to
3: leave the house, Scarlett. <laughs> <laughs> Not a crowd you want to be hanging around. <laughs> By the way, let's before Lynchy says something, is like, yes, you won again, Lynchy, and you you were under, so you actually do come on stage, man, yeah. for the show. This is
5: a legitimate win.
3: This is a legitimate win. Yes. So you know, it was good job, good. Lynchy. I'll take the fridge, the range, and the in the oven. <laughs> This has been the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports.
5: I'm Scarlet Foo, at Scarlet Foo on Twitter.
6: We could have talked to the professor forever. I'm Mike Lynch. Follow me at Lynch EWCBB.
3: This has been the Bloomberg Business of Sports. By the way, you can hear us right here on Bloomberg Radio or download the show wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.